Welcome back to another edition of the ASEP Equal Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Dr. Jason Woods. Today's discussion is with Dr. Elizabeth Samuels from Brown Emergency Medicine. This discussion was originally recorded in March of 2021 and is titled A Social Emergency Medicine Approach to Opioid Use Disorder. First up, I want to make note that for the original talk, Dr. Samuels has 60 references. I will jump into the recording as necessary to highlight references, and we'll put a selection of them in the show notes for this podcast. However, if you want to see the entire list, please visit the ASAP Equal website. Without further ado, Dr. Samuels, what can we expect from the next 20 or so minutes? Today, I'm going to review what addiction and opioid use disorder are and outline a social emergency medicine approach to caring for emergency department patients with opioid use disorder, from the bedside delivery of care to policy advocacy. I will describe current drug law and policy and resulting racial inequities and what we can do in the emergency department to provide access to life-saving harm reduction services and opioid use disorder treatment. It's important to note that substance use is not the same thing as having a use disorder and physiologic dependence on a substance is not the same thing as having an addiction. When we talk about addictions, we're talking about treatable chronic diseases involving complex interactions of genetics, the environment, a person's life experiences, and brain circuitry, which result in alterations in the central reward pathway of the brain. These neurobiological changes in the prefrontal cortex and amygdala result in compulsive urges to use substances despite negative consequences. Prevention efforts and treatment approaches for addiction are generally as successful as those used for other chronic diseases. There are multiple scales at which we can intervene to reduce morbidity and mortality related to substance use. The health impact pyramid is one way to visualize the impact of interventions on populations and individuals. Here at the bottom, addressing socioeconomic factors and the environment will have broader population health effects, while toward the top, counseling and education and clinical interventions require increased effort on the individual level. In the emergency department, we typically focus here on preventative, clinical, and educational interventions. These can and do provide significant benefit to the individuals we treat, but we can have a larger population-wide impact by addressing environmental and socioeconomic factors. This socio-ecological model illustrates opioid use disorder interventions at a range of levels that can improve the health outcomes and well-being of individuals and society at large. They range from individual interpersonal, organizational, community, and policy interventions. Emergency physicians can have an impact at each of these levels of the ecological model. Opioid use disorder, individual, and interpersonal interventions are ones that we can deliver at bedside and include things like peer support, medication for opioid use disorder, syringe services programs, naloxone distribution. Organizational interventions are ones that can happen at the hospital system level. These may include institutional prescribing guidelines, establishment of hospital-based buprenorphine bridge programs or health navigation programs. Community level interventions are ones that are focused on the surrounding community. So this might be about um, dealing with exposures to violence, establishment of housing first programs or job skills development programs. Hospitals have an opportunity to cross the organizational um, community spheres of the social ecological model through developing organizational community partnerships. And then finally, policy level interventions focus on uh, laws and policies impacting people's lives. 
which uh, include the drug and alcohol supply, drug criminalization, unemployment assistance, and insurance. That was an incredible way to introduce us to the topic as well as orient us to the issues. And as you already brought up, maybe next you can discuss how the drug supply and governmental policy affect both our efforts and our patients. Drugs in the United States, as in most places, are illegal, and we live in a country with a high demand for opioids. The illicit drug supply is obviously not regulated and has become increasingly toxic with the introduction of fentanyl analogs into both the opioid and stimulant drug supplies. We consider the rising number of overdose deaths over the last 20 years to have three waves. First, with rising deaths due to prescription opioids, followed by a rise in deaths due to heroin. And now in the third wave, most deaths are due to synthetic opioids, specifically fentanyl and fentanyl analogs. Prescription drug monitoring programs and prescribing guidelines and limits have not had a significant impact on reducing overdose deaths. While deaths involving prescription opioids have somewhat plateaued, as is depicted here, they are still involved in many opioid overdose deaths. Overall, the United States has primarily taken a criminal justice approach to substance use and use disorders, rather than a medical or public health approach. In 1971, President Nixon declared the war on drugs. This was followed by the 1984 Sentencing Reform Act, which abolished indeterminate sentencing, abolished federal parole, and uh, implemented several types of mandatory minimum sentences. Several provisions were subsequently enacted in 1986, 1988, and 1990, but cumulatively, these reforms have resulted in the exponential increase in the U.S. prison population. Currently, the United States has 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prison population. Despite rising incarceration for drug possession, this approach has not changed the prevalence of substance use, nor the outcomes of substance use disorders. Currently, one in five people who are incarcerated in state prisons, local jails, and federal prisons are locked up for a drug offense. The majority of drug-related arrests are for possession, which is at a six times higher rate than arrests for drug sales or manufacturing. People of color are disproportionately incarcerated for drug possession compared to white people. A higher proportion of white Americans report using drugs. However, black people are six and a half times more likely than white people to be incarcerated for drug-related crimes. The war on drugs approach to substance use and substance use disorders has not only failed to reduce overdose deaths and substance use, but has also resulted in the disproportionate incarceration and disenfranchisement of Black people living in the United States. This is not necessarily the way it has to be. In 2001, Portugal made a dramatic policy change in their approach to substance use and caring for people with substance use disorders. At the time, they were experiencing some of the highest per capita overdose death rates in the world, then referred to as the heroin capital of Europe. They made the radical decision to take a public health approach by offering treatment instead of punishment. They decriminalized simple drug possession, and instead of putting people in prison, people could receive a fine and were offered treatment instead of going to prison. And funding was used to expand and really develop a system of treatment and individualized support. Since this policy change, there have been reductions in problematic drug use, increases in treatment engagement, and reductions in incarceration. Overdose deaths in Portugal have significantly reduced. New HIV diagnoses due to injection drug use have also declined. 
Now, per capita death rates in Portugal are among the lowest in Europe. Decriminalization is increasingly showing up on the ballot box, primarily regarding decriminalization of marijuana. In 2020, Oregon passed Measure 110, which reclassifies possession of small amounts of drugs, including cocaine, heroin, oxycodone, and methamphetamine, as a civil violation, similar to a traffic offense. Through the reallocation of cannabis tax dollars, savings from law enforcement making fewer drug arrests, and funds from fines for drug possession, Oregon will fund health assessments, addiction treatment, harm reduction, and other services for people with substance use disorders. Those previous topics fall into the upstream and midstream areas of the overall efforts to address opioid use disorder. Can you transition now and talk a little bit about harm reduction strategies and treatment access so that we can get an idea of the downstream ways to tackle this? Harm reduction is an approach which respects people's health and dignity, is person-centered, involves patients in the decisions that impact their lives, recognizes inequities and injustices, respects people's autonomy, and is pragmatic and realistic about substance use. Harm reduction really means recognizing and honoring people's intrinsic worth as human beings and treating them with respect, dignity, and compassion. There are a range of harm reduction services that can be provided to reduce opioid-related harms, but I will mention just a few here. Community naloxone distribution programs have been established since the 1990s and have been shown to reduce overdose deaths, increase engagement in treatment, and be cost-effective. Currently, naloxone is distributed in a range of settings, from community-based harm reduction organizations to health departments and emergency departments. Syringe services programs, sometimes also called needle exchange programs, provide a range of services for drug user health. This includes provision of sterile syringes and injection equipment, take-home naloxone, HIV and hepatitis C testing, and provision of uh, basic health needs. Recommended by both the CDC and the World Health Organization, syringe services programs have been shown to reduce HIV and hepatitis C transmission, reduce overdose deaths, and increase engagement in addiction treatment. Fentanyl test strips are a relatively new intervention, and they're still being evaluated, but early studies show that people do take the information gleaned um, uh, when drugs that they use test positive for fentanyl to modify use to reduce risk of overdose. With opioids increasingly found in the stimulant supply, these are useful for people with stimulant disorders as well. One of the main limitations to note about these is that they do not pick up all fentanyl analogs as there are new analogs introduced in the drug supply on a regular basis. This is extremely important in terms of counseling that a negative test does does not 100% definitely mean that fentanyl is not present in the substance someone's going to use. Finally, supervised consumption sites, also referred to as overdose prevention centers. There are 120 of these worldwide across Europe, Canada, and Australia, and they've been rigorously studied over the last couple of decades and are associated with reductions in mortality, crime, drug-related litter. They've also been shown to increase engagement in treatment. There has never been an overdose death in a supervised consumption site. Research on an unsanctioned site in the United States has been recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine, as well as the Drug and Alcohol Dependence, which have shown no death during all years of operation and reduced crime around the facility. Many cities and states have pursued establishing a supervised consumption site in the United States, but this has not yet been done.
Access to treatment is also significantly limited in the United States. Over 20 million Americans over the age of 12 have a substance use disorder, but only one in five receive treatment. Most treatment is delivered through primary care settings with around a quarter being delivered through specialty drug treatment centers. Limited treatment engagement is due to multiple reasons, including knowledge gaps in what treatment is available and what is evidence-based treatment, access gaps, both in terms of what is available where someone lives, um, insurance barriers, transportation barriers, language and cultural barriers, readiness to seek treatment, whether someone is ready to engage in treatment, and importantly, stigma and bias. Both stigma in terms of the, uh, the person with substance use disorder has um, about themselves, then stigma and bias that they experience when engaging or seeking care in both the medical and behavioral health system, and then stigma and bias about treatments that are available for treatment of substance use disorders. We are all too familiar in the emergency department about the consequences of untreated opioid use disorder. Patients who have been to the emergency department for people for an opioid overdose are at extremely high risk of death. This is a cohort study in Massachusetts that looked at one-year mortality of patients who were treated in the emergency department for a non-fatal opioid overdose. And what they found is that over 5% or more than 1 in 20 of people treated in the emergency department for a non-fatal opioid overdose will die in the year after that ED visit, with the largest proportion of deaths occurring within a month of their ED visit. And the reference for that is from Wiener et al., Journals of Emergency Medicine 2020, titled One-Year Mortality of Patients After Emergency Department Treatment for Non-Fatal Opioid Overdose. When we compare this to other diseases we treat in the emergency department, this is four times the risk of MI or death in patients with moderate risk chest pain, and two times the risk of MI or death in patients with high-risk chest pain. Thankfully, there are evidence-based medications to treat opioid use disorder. There are currently three FDA-approved medications to treat opioid use disorder, and these include methadone, which is a full agonist, buprenorphine, which is a partial agonist, and naltrexone, which is an antagonist. Methadone is available through federally regulated outpatient opioid treatment programs. Buprenorphine can also be provided at these programs, but it's also available in private office-based clinics, as is naltrexone. In this recently published comparative effectiveness study, Dr. Wakeman and uh, her co-investigators looked at the comparative effectiveness of opioid use disorder treatment in patients with opioid use disorder. And this includes looking at uh, inpatient detox, intensive uh, outpatient and inpatient behavioral health treatment, uh, naltrexone, and then buprenorphine and methadone. And that is by Wakeman et al., JAMA Network Open 2020, titled Comparative Effectiveness of Different Treatment Pathways for Opioid Use Disorder. And what they found is that treatment with buprenorphine and methadone was much more effective than these other treatments with reductions in opioid overdose, as well as acute care utilization. When we Look at studies examining the effectiveness of medications for opioid use disorder, specifically buprenorphine and methadone. We have seen improved survival, treatment retention, ability to gain and maintain employment, birth outcomes, and quality of life. And we also see reductions in overdose, reductions in mortality by up to 50%, 
reductions in HIV and hepatitis C, and reductions in crime. Initiation and medication for opioid use disorder in the year after an opioid overdose can significantly reduce mortality. This study was a cohort in Massachusetts of around 17,000 people that looked at the use of medication for opioid use disorder in the year after an ED visit for opioid overdose, and they found significant reductions in all-cause and opioid-related mortality during the months people were on methadone and buprenorphine. And that's from La Rochelle and colleagues in the Annals of Internal Medicine 2018, titled Medication for Opioid Use Disorder After Non-Fatal Opioid Overdose and Association with Mortality. However, who gets started on treatment is not uniform. In this national study of commercially insured people, people were observed to be less likely to get started on treatment if they were older, women, and Black or Hispanic. All right, I'm done interrupting for a while, but this is a really important one. It's from Kilaru and colleagues published in JAMA Network Open in 2020 titled Incidents of Treatment for Opioid Use Disorder Following Non-Fatal Overdose in Commercially Insured Patients. And what they found is that Black patients were half as likely to obtain follow-up compared to white um, non-Hispanic patients. So taken together, what we've seen about the disproportionate rates of incarceration of Black people in the United States due to drug possession and racial inequities in access to treatment, I think it's important to underscore that how we approach substance use and how we treat substance use disorders are racial equity issues. And we have a tremendous opportunity to address these gaps in the emergency department. This may seem overwhelming and this is a complex issue, absolutely, but we really do have an opportunity to make a difference in the emergency department. Generally, the emergency department uh, provides three major functions. We provide time-sensitive treatment and stabilization. Think of your MI, stroke, sepsis, overdose, et cetera. We are an acute diagnostic center, evaluating a differentiated abdominal pain, chest pain, altered mental status. And we serve as the primary interface between the community and the healthcare system, providing vital healthcare access and treatment linkage. We do this for a range of medical conditions. You broke your arm, we link you to orthopedics. You're newly pregnant, we refer you to an OB. We identify that you have opioid use disorder. We can do and should link you to addiction treatment and harm reduction services. And emergency department opioid use disorder care falls into three general categories. Prevention through either um, prescribing guidelines or screening and identification of people at risk for opioid use disorder and overdose, provision of harm reduction services through individualized harm reduction education or provision of take-home naloxone, and treatment through treatment initiation in the emergency department and linkage to outpatient care. Once you've identified a person with opioid use disorder or someone who is at risk for overdose, a general approach to these patients should begin with assessing where the patient is like you would with any other patient population. Taking a trauma-informed, non-judgmental approach using principles of motivational interviewing, assess where the patient is in their willingness, confidence, and readiness for change, and then meet the patient where they are. The goal is to keep the door open. Not everyone will be ready for treatment at the time of their ED visit, but we still have something to offer patients in the form of harm reduction, making the emergency department a place they know they can return to for treatment initiation and linkage in the future. Buprenorphine initiation is increasingly being implemented and utilized in emergency departments 
and recognized nationally as a standard of care for treatment of opioid withdrawal and opioid use disorder. In this seminal randomized controlled trial by Dr. Gail D'Onofrio and colleagues at Yale, they found that emergency department-initiated buprenorphine was associated with a significant increase in 30-day treatment engagement and a reduction in illicit opioid use at 30 days compared to referral alone or brief intervention with referral. All right, I know I said I was done interrupting for a little bit, but this is just a monster of an article that you have to know about. It's from, the lead author is D'Onofrio, titled Emergency Department Initiated Buprenorphine Naloxone Treatment for Opioid Dependence, a Randomized Clinical Trial. It's from JAMA in 2015. If you haven't read it, you need to. It's something you gotta have in your back pocket. Despite these promising results, this practice is not yet widespread. This is for multiple reasons, including the fact that practice change is slow and takes time. Hawk et al. recently identified some key implementation barriers and facilitators which impact implementation of emergency department buprenorphine programs. These include lack of training and experience, outpatient treatment availability, and competing needs for time and resources. Facilitators include provision of education and training, local departmental protocols, and provision of feedback on patient experiences and gaps in quality of care. These barriers are absolutely addressable. There are multiple efforts to implement emergency department buprenorphine in both community settings and in rural areas. Implementation and efficacy of emergency department buprenorphine is an active area of research. The NIDA Clinical Trial Network is conducting a multi-site study, ED innovation, across a diversity of types of hospitals, both community and academic, rural and urban, in a variety of geographic locations across the country. This study is a randomized controlled trial comparing sublingual buprenorphine to a seven-day injectable buprenorphine given at the time of the ED visit. If you are interested in finding out more about how to initiate buprenorphine treatment in the emergency department, there are a range of resources available to you through ASEP's EQUAL network, the California Bridge Program, and the Get Waivered Initiative. Resources range from emergency department-specific waiver training led by emergency physicians relevant to our practice of emergency medicine, treatment protocols and guidelines, and a point-of-care tool you can use at bedside or an access while on shift in the emergency department to help guide your initiation of buprenorphine. So in closing, addictions are complex biopsychosocial diseases. We don't have all the answers, but we do have an important role to play in advocating for upstream policy changes to have the largest population health impact. We can also provide access to harm reduction and addiction treatment at the time of the ED encounter to help address um, treatment gaps and improve health outcomes. I mean, there really is no better way to wrap it up than Dr. Samuels did, so I'm just going to leave it there. Thank you very much for listening today, and thank you, Dr. Samuels, for providing this incredible content to us. If you're interested in viewing the rest of the ASAP Equal content, you can visit the ASAP website and search for the Equal Initiative. If you're interested in the rest of our podcast series, you can find all of it on the Academic Life and Emergency Medicine website, www.aliem.com. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at jasonwoodsmd at gmail.com. Thanks for your time.